Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I'm joined by Techmeister Marshall Downtown Brown and voiceover colossus Ken Krause, and by our artist of the show. Today we talk to Tracy Burns, an actress, improviser, and theater coach since the early 1980s. She's worked with performers from around the world and coached animators from Pixar to DreamWorks. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash Snap Sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. A trip to New Zealand. My wife and I just returned from two excellent weeks of touring New Zealand. It's a beautiful place full of natural splendor. There are fabulous national parks, great long stretches of driving past lakes, through valleys and along sea coasts that boggle the mind. I got the feeling I was being wowed in the same way that many Europeans are when they come to the vast expanses of the western United States. We had the good fortune of being guided by friends who had been living there on and off since 2010. They're doctors, and he has been working in a provincial hospital in Timaru on the South Island for many months of the year. He is part of a social system which has national health care, where even Christine and I would have been covered if we had been injured. Covered like a health system that cares about people, not about profit. He works a relatively humane schedule with more time for each patient than he is used to back here in Northern California, where our medical system is driven by private insurance. I was amazed to hear he isn't cut off after 15 or 20 minutes with a patient, but has the time to investigate deeper. Hmm. Before you think that I am going off the deep end... (laughs) Let me report our touring itinerary, for it was the stuff of dreams. We landed in Auckland, the biggest city in Kiwiland, somewhat reminiscent of Seattle, and located near the top end of the North Island. In addition to visiting the Auckland War Memorial Museum, with its great collection of Maori art, we also saw Kate Blanchett in Manifesto, saw a comedy show at the New Zealand Comedy Festival, and did a lot of walking. Great town, lots to see. We then began a Lord of the Rings Maori aspect of our tour. Well, what can I tell you? Life in the wide world goes on, much as it has this past day, full of its own comings and goings. Scarcely aware of the existence of hobbits, which I'm very thankful. Visiting the Hobbiton movie set near Mata Mata, and then heading south to the volcanic spa town of Rotorua which not only includes some brilliant hot baths at the Polynesian Spa, but also features the terrific Maori-guided tour of the Te Puya Thermal Reserves. Steam comes out of the ground in a variety of places, the geysers go off fairly regularly, and hot mud bubbles up frequently along the tour. From there, we drove along Lake Taupo into Tangariro National Park, where Lord of the Rings' Mount Doom is located. As we drove along with Doom in the background... I imagine Ian McKellen, I mean Gandalf, walking toward the mountain with his big stick. Saruman, your staff is broken. (laughs) 
Wellington is the capital in a lovely medium-sized city, about 450,000, with a nice harbor and a brilliant museum. Here we saw once again the importance Kiwis place on the failed invasion of Gallipoli in 1915 and its importance in their national consciousness. Every year in late April, Kiwis and Aussies celebrate Anzac Day, really a commemoration of the uselessness of war, quite a contrast with the chest-thumping National Day celebrated by many other nations. One can't help the feeling that both countries have actually gained valuable lessons from the jaws of defeat. We flew to the South Island the next day after seeing a movie premiere of The Breaker Upperers, a comedy made by Kiwi movie makers Jackie Van Beek and Madeline Sami. Hello, Breaker Upperers. Hello, Breaker Upperers. You want to be single by March? Consider it done. To emphasize the smallness of New Zealand, the next day the stars were on our flight to Christchurch, riding coach just like everyone else. We would spend another fabulous week touring the South Island, seeing Mount Cook, where Sir Edmund Hillary trained for his ascent of Mount Everest, and much fabulous beauty in Queenstown, Dunedin, Omaru, and Christchurch. But this little episode struck me for its special quality. If I may be allowed to generalize, Kiwis are among the least pretentious people I have come across. He's from New Zealand. Yeah, kind of talks in a monotone, sounds like a robot. Well, that's the New Zealand accent. A movie star sitting next to you in coach is indicative of a certain attitude toward life. That is, we're all in this together, and we're all basically just people, whether flying coach or flying coach. Kiwis are into fairness and act daily in democratic ways. When I returned home, I read an essay about a book written by an American historian, David Hackett Fisher, called A History of Two Open Societies, The New Zealand and The United States. Fisher has spent a fair amount of time working in New Zealand and has come to the conclusion that while Americans value freedom and liberty above all else, Give me liberty or give me death! New Zealand is organized around the principles of fairness and social justice. Fisher points out that it was one of the few colonies in any empire that had no system of race slavery, no penal settlements, no plantation serfdom, and no contract bondage. Granted, there were battles with the Maori, there was land confiscation, but in comparison with the U.S., New Zealand has worked hard over time to settle conflicts via arbitration. Two generations ahead of Franklin Roosevelt, But will attempt to give to the industrial workers of the country a more fair wage return. New Zealand had the Liberal Labor Coalition of the 1890s, which instituted reforms including votes for women, 1894, far-reaching industrial and labor laws, old-age pensions, and their first national parks. Granted, no country is perfect, and I see some environmental problems coming up for New Zealand in the near future. They have a heavily agricultural economy, with millions more sheep than people, and a rapidly developing cattle industry. A lot of this is meant for export to the growing meat markets of China, Korea, and Japan. And this has led to increasing fertilizer and pesticide runoff, as well as to an explosion in bovine methane emissions. And silly attempts to introduce various animals over time, rabbits, stoats, and deer, although meant to solve problems, have just led to others. I saw more bunnies every day than I ever see here, for example. Where's the ordinary rabbit? That's the most foul, cruel, and bad-tempered rodent you ever set eyes on. You tit! But the Kiwis are working to get this under control. Recognition of a problem is better than ignoring it, as I see so much of the time in Trump's America. 
I am hopeful that New Zealand's new Labour Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, and her Green and New Zealand First Party allies will work toward more progressive environmental policies. In fact, I bet it will happen. Unlike the United States, even the nominally conservative parties of New Zealand are, to quote historian Fisher, remarkably forward-looking in their social policies. It's great to see a country that is so focused on social justice across the political spectrum. As Fisher concludes, on the subject of fairness, no nation in the world has more to teach than New Zealand, and no country has more to learn than the United States. One must add, especially the present occupant of the White House and the party that so obsequiously backs him. Because we're led by people that don't have a clue. Honestly, I think we're led by stupid people. Hi, I'm here with Tracy Burns, who I have known since 1982. Tracy and I met in Hit and Run Theater. Yep. And um, she was a 19-year-old wisecracking upstart when I met her who was totally interested in entertaining people. She had had a fair amount of acting experience in high school and junior college when she first moved up to Mendocino. So, Tracy, welcome, and really glad to have you here. I am very glad to be here. And uh, just to clarify, I think by the time we started working together, I was actually 20. Um, I started dancing first, you know, five years old at the San Francisco Ballet School. And the story that my mom tells is that I would walk out every time out of out of class and go, Mommy, they're breaking my body. And it was just too intense for me. And I didn't like wearing black um, and pink. So she moved me over to the Jewish Community Center where I wore turquoise and purple. And it was a little more leeway. They weren't trying to create prima ballerinas. Um, so I started dancing. I danced all through childhood. But then I was, um, I went to an alternative grammar school called Rooftop in San Francisco, which is still going, I hear. And I was there for the first and second year that it opened. And there was a television show at the time. Was that Whatchamacallit or Zoom? It was one of those kid PBS shows, and it was a local San Francisco, or whatever it was. They came out to, inter the, to interview us about, uh, to do a story on my school rooftop. And afterwards, when we, the, all of us kids watched the episode, these kids who were on the television show kind of trashed our school and we got really upset about it. So we decided we were going to do our own show. So we started doing, uh, there was a kid in sixth grade, found a radio station. We started doing shows on the radio and then he contacted a producer at KRON television who came and met with us at this kid, um, um, Paul Weiner's house. And Chris Metcalf came and talked to us about our show. And she said, well, there's not really room for us to do that, but we are starting a new kids show, a kids news show, come and audition. So several of us went and auditioned and I got on it and Danny O'Connor got on it. So Danny was the kid on the street interviews and I was a reporter on Kids Watch and it was I guess it ran all over California at least northern California I saw it I was in college at the time <laughs> I think and I <laughs> so I did news stories but the other part was that there were editorials because it was a news show and I couldn't do the editorials myself they had this little kid named Aloysius Weimer 
who was just this little kid doing the editorials, but I wrote a lot of the editorials because I always had something to say. <laughs> I always had an opinion. And my dad helped me write them because he wrote as part of his job. And so he was, he helped me craft an argument. And so I wrote a lot of the editorials that this kid, Aloysius Weimer, read. And then um, Dan and I, Danny and I, anchored once. We were never asked to anchor again. <laughs> And said so you followed in the footsteps of Albert Brooks on broadcast. Yeah, I, it didn't. I guess it didn't go all that well, and I went back to reporting. But I was the first kid that was off the show, and they said it was because I had matured too quickly, um, and I looked older than everybody else. I think it's because I was a pain in the ass, and I argued with everybody all the time. I was always arguing and always had a point, and there was always something injustice somewhere that I needed to write. And um, I think they finally went, yeah, whatever, goodbye. <laughs> so you were on for about two years Two or so. years, I think it was, mm -hmm. yeah, something like that. When I was doing plays in high school, I found that I liked it better when things didn't go according to plan. And one example was a play, uh, a one-act play by Edward Albee, and there were all these crisp wrapped Christmas presents, and I think at one point one character stomps on one, or maybe I stomp on one. But something happened. I think I might have gone up on my lines, whatever it was, and I ended up just covering by stomping on all the Christmas presents. And I just went on this rampage stomping Christmas presents and then a couple of the other performers started stomping too. And I remember one girl just stood there like she just didn't know what to do and was completely thrown. And then we stomped the Christmas presents then went back into the dialogue. And it was super fun. We got some big laughs. And then I got in big trouble afterwards. But I found that it was like, that's way more fun than just, I just really liked it. I got kicked out of College of Marin. Um, Why did you get kicked out? Well, not for anything egregious. I um, didn't drop classes officially. Oh. So, And then I was in a lighting class, and I didn't do the project um, because the guy never was there, and he didn't teach us how to do it. So I was in protest going, you didn't teach me how to do it. I'm not doing it. But I kept going because I had this great Shakespeare class and a great audition class, and it wasn't until the end of the semester my teacher said, you're not actually in my class. It's like, well, officially I actually got kicked out. <laughs> And he said, well, if you want to finish the class, get kicked back in. So I went before the board and I apologized and I said I would do all the work. And then I finished my classes and I moved to Mendocino. <laughs> so I moved up in the spring and, it, and I moved in with, and mostly just to follow Susan. And I really wanted out of Marin. I didn't like Marin County. This is the spring of 82. Yeah, because I, I grew up in San Francisco and then we moved to Marin as a teenager. As a young teen, preteen, and so my goal was get out of Marin. But I, before I was, you know, I, I was still 19, and I did some work at then MPAC. And the theater company added a show, which was Doctor in Spite of Himself, in Van Damme Park. And that's so it was an just an added show. show. Yeah, it was an outdoor show. It was just added. It was because they had cast way far ahead. Um, so there was nothing for me to audition for for a good while. Um, so they added this show, so I auditioned. Linda Pack directed it, and then uh, at the audition was a woman named Ellen Callis and a guy named Richard Albright. And then coming in late and just sort of sweeping in was a young buck named Harry Rothman. And um, I got cast as the ingenue. I came in on National Velveeta. And our first rehearsal was at Ellen's house, and you um, plopped me on the couch in front of the 
VCR to watch Ovelvita so I could get the hit and run vibe. You couldn't see anything or hear anything. It was all black plastic. You couldn't understand anything that was being said or really see anything unless you knew what the show was already. Meanwhile, you guys are in the kitchen laughing up a storm. And I would walk in and like, oh, hey, you guys. And then you would take me by my shoulders and you'd come in. You would sit me down in front of the couch again to watch the video that you couldn't see or hear. And then I'd come back in the kitchen. But we um, were talking about a set and Matt Roland was going to make an, another set out of white plastic. And we were talking about making it a kitchen. And somebody said, well, why make it a kitchen set? And I said, because... and I. I think that it was National Velveeta, a sensitive look at war and violence or something like yes, that. Yes, right. <laughs> and so it was like, well, why a kitchen? I said, because violence in the kitchen with Dinah. And you said, write that script. Write that scene. And I was like, oh, okay. And so that was the first sketch I ever wrote was violence in the kitchen with Dinah. Now, we should give some background at Hit and Run Theater um, that Tracy is mentioning. We were a comedy sketch group that also did improvisation. And we had started in the fall of 1979 with the Christmas show. And we had been doing some improv starting in early 1980. Very, very simplistic improv. And we were writing our own sketch shows. And um, sort of a couple years, just a couple years into it, and Tracy shows up. And she's not only willing to be in the group and wanting to be in the group, very funny, but willing to go ahead and start writing sketches. So Violence in the Kitchen with Dinah was your first sketch. A, uh, that was my very first sketch. And then a, a parody of um, Valley Girl, which was Preppy Girl, which right. is a song parody that I wrote. And um, yeah, so it was really fun. And what was interesting, because I was so much younger than everybody else in the group, and I moved to Mendocino thinking I'd be here for a few months, and then I was going to go to drama school. My plan was to be you know, a regular actress. And... I just didn't leave. Um, and I remember going back to Marin and running into a friend who was at College of Marin. I was at College of Marin with. She was at Carnegie Mellon or some really big acting school. And it's like, oh, well, how many shows have you done? And she said, well, we don't do shows. You know, it's like you have to wait for a couple of years. And I had done, I can't even know how, I don't even know how many shows I had done since I was in Mendocino, including writing my own material. And I was like, you know what? I'm kind of happy doing this. Um, and... It was so much fun, but what was interesting was I was used to auditioning. That's what you do. So anytime, and you wrote the majority of the sketches, but anytime somebody brought in a sketch, I auditioned for the part. Like I would go full out to get the part. And I learned pretty quickly that that was not, don't, that wasn't cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, no, we're a little more relaxed here. But my real, I had a real education with Hit and Run because I, you know, I didn't do particularly well in school. I wasn't, I, you guys taught me so much because also politics and what's going on in the world. I mean, I was pretty political and I was a pretty activist even back then. And, but it was because you were, you know, old, you know, the next youngest person to me was 10 years it was my education. I really learned a lot. I learned a lot on so much about everything, living, relationships, just stuff. It was, it was, it was great. It was an amazing, amazing time. And I look back now and go, holy cow, what a thing we did. Because we wrote all the time yeah. and did shows all the time and created new material all the time. One of the things that, that I think got us going was that we worked regularly. We had regular mm -hmm. monthly shows at the Seagull. Then we had regular monthly with the Laugh Fest right. 1984 series. 
we would write a, an hour of sketches a, a month, and then we would open for a professional comic yeah. that we would book up here in Mendocino or a group. We had uh, Will Durst up here. We had Doug Ferrari. We had Ray Hanna. We had all kinds of comics. Tom Kenny. Tom Kenny, who, who later became a SpongeBob SquarePants. But we had all kinds of people up, and we forced ourselves to write an hour mm -hmm. of stuff every single month. And we would work really hard on it for two weeks, and then we'd put it up in a show. It was great. And I started directing some of those shows, too, which was also really amazing to be, you know, 22 or whatever, 21, 22, and getting to direct. I really liked that. It was really great. So my training, it was, an, it was amazing training. I mean, I was writing my own material, performing, directing, you know, what, doing kind of all the the sides of it and it was and it was such a family you know we hung out together we ate meals together we celebrated birthdays together we all were just sort of together most of the time and still I'll start getting all choked up you know the hit and runners are my closest friends I love them What were your first thoughts as an imp improviser and what kind of stuff did you feel about improv when you first started doing it I loved improv. I loved improvising. I loved, I mean, I liked sketches too because you could play any kind of part you would not get, ever get cast in. And improv, you could play or be anything. Animals, furniture, humans. It was so much fun. I loved just that being in that moment. It was interesting because you think of improv and uh, that people need to be very smart and clever and quick. And I did not think of myself as that at all. I mean, I literally thought I was stupid until I was in my early to mid-30s. That's another story. And I didn't feel very verbally de dexterous. So I was character. I was always character. Um, put me in a character, and I could then go from there. So the character would take over, the character could talk, the character could do everything, and I got to hide behind that effectively. So for me, I was physical and a character and emotional. And those were the things I relied on and still do as an improviser um, 36 years later. It was, again, great training. It just, you know, you do grow. You do become more facile. You do, um, um, <laughs> I was going to say, you get more articulate. But I don't think I've demonstrated that at this moment. So, yeah, I, I mean, my, I, I would never have thought that improv would be my life's work, ever. And I would never have thought teaching, which I will probably get to, would be my life's work ever. But they both are. And improv is a method. It is an entertainment. It's an art form. But it's also a tool. And the tool can be used for so many things. And improv, we improvise our way through life. There is no script. We know that. Understanding how to create a scene with somebody else and how to move action along and create a story becomes really a nice tool for how to collaborate with somebody more effectively, whether it's just a person on the street or in a job or on stage. So I'm very grateful for it. And you can never perfect it. You learn all the time. You just keep learning and just keep learning. So in the early 1985, you and I, um, Tracy Burns and Doug Nunn decided that we would like to try our hands as a double act. So um, the British uh, cabaret scene, the so-called alternative cabaret scene, was thriving in and around London. 
So we decided to move over, start taking workshops, start doing um, tryout gigs and see what happened. Mm -hmm. So you're, please describe some of your first thoughts as you headed off to Britain in uh, March of 1985. Well, I think that one, the fact that we moved to London is interesting because, you know, I think we thought about, well, we could start in San Francisco, we could start in LA or New York and you had experience being in London, you had friends, um, you had been an exchange student at Trinity Dublin, you had became friends with exchange students from England when you were at Berkeley. So you already had a connection in London. And once we paid for flights, it really was sort of six of one, half a dozen of the other as far as expense. So I did, I was just like, okay. And we moved right just that we got there a couple days before my 23rd birthday. And golly, so young. Um, and we just decided we're going to start our double act career in London. And wow, what an amazing thing. I mean, just an amazing thing. So <laughs> our first ever gig we did, you know, we, we had sketches that we had done with Hit and Run and we had, we wrote some jokes and we were going to do improv and our very first gig ever was at a place called the Canal Cafe Cabaret and it was all, you. it was, I guess anybody could show up and perform. That It was like an open mic night. And in Britain at that time, they didn't have open mic nights, really. And they, they had, in the middle of a professional show, they would have one, like, five-minute spot that was called an open spot. And that would be for a new act to try out in that club. And generally speaking, if you were good, you usually got booked right away. So you do a lot of open spots and a lot of clubs to start building up, and then you start getting gigs. Canal Cafe was one of the only places that had... I think it was just like anybody could come come up. We um, there was a guy we had seen. I think it was the night before at Jongleurs named Chris Lynham, who was this very edgy act. He was very weird, and um, it turned out that there was this heckler woman in the front row who was heckling all night long. So right before we go backstage to go on, and Chris is going to be before us, and he said, "Hey, can I borrow?" I forgot um, my eyeliner. Can I borrow eyeliner? Sure. So I give my eyeliner. He goes, and I forgot a very important prop. Can I borrow your bra? And I was like, okay, sure, of course. Take my bra off and I give him my bra. He goes on stage and um, it doesn't last very long because the heckler woman gets him. And then you just kind of hear sort of like glasses breaking and a little kerfuffle. I'm like, what the heck's going on? He comes back off and he's sort of swearing, blah, 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 blah. And the MC, they call him compares over there, decides he's going to move the show right along. And he starts to introduce, introduce us immediately. And ladies and gentlemen, all the way from the United States, I'm going, give me my bra, give me my bra. And I flip my shirt over and I get my bra on just in time for uh, Lee to say, none and Bush, <laughs> <laughs> which is a shoe <coughs> company. And we go on stage and we did our set and we did really well. And even you got the best of the heckler. Um, As I recall, you jumped off stage. You jumped off stage. Way, and grabbed the uh, cigarette holder yeah. out of her hand. And took you, a puff, you did it. And then gave it back to yeah, her. Yeah, I think that was you. <laughs> it was um, the, the Jonglers was the biggest club in London. And what I loved so much was 
at a, at a bigger club like like Jonglers, you could see some stand-ups, you could see double acts, you could see jugglers, you could hear a chanteuse sing. It was a real variety of entertainment, and the audience went with every single one. Oh, we're doing that now? Okay. Oh, we're doing that now? Okay. And went with it. I also love that there was no hierarchy. There was no opening act, middle set, headliner. They were all 20-minute sets. And everybody just went where it made sense for them to go. We, you and I, were a really good opener because we were friendly. We did sketches. We could warm up an audience really well. We, I liked a cold audience. I didn't want somebody else's audience. Yeah. Um, and if we had to follow a hard act, you know, a, um, a literally a hard act to follow, a some, you know, really um, edgy and scatological or whatever that was really it's hard to come back to sweet and nice after that and the first time we played jonglers and doing the open spot which was the biggest club at that time in london and she loved us we killed it and she booked us three spots on this she booked us three gigs on the spot and we really didn't need to do too many more open spots after that although after our first night at jonglers that it's like 300 people and we kill it the next day we go to this tea time cabaret at 4 p.m in north london <laughs> and nobody there's and it's raining and there's nobody there except for a guy who doesn't speak english um a homeless person getting out of the rain and right before we're supposed to do the show the um person who ran the show gets a call that his best friend has just died and this other female comic says we should do the show anyway we wanted to cheer him up at that point we're gonna cheer him up (laughs) so it's just we're doing our sets for each other just the 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 other acts the homeless guy the person who doesn't speak english and this poor guy who keeps moaning in the back about his best friend dying which is awful and we finish and then this woman suggests we should actually all pay for the the key the tea and the cookies that he provided so we actually paid for that set ourselves and it really was a nice you know it was nice you know up in one and down the next day but um yeah and then we became a regular fixture on the circuit we did a variety of those kind of things. Like I said, played the Edinburgh Festival, toured all over Britain. Played the um, CND Festival oh, in yeah. Glastonbury, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament Festival. It turned out that we played at exactly the same time that the Boomtown Rats were playing, which was right after Live Aid. So Geldof had just done Live Aid, and now they're playing. So the only people who were in our tent were basically too drunk or stoned to move at all. There was a lot of (laughs) majorly stoned hippies. Yeah, and And it was was raining constantly. Yeah, it rained constantly in Glastonbury. And uh, I remember we were trying to cook sausages at one point, and the frying pan was filling up with rainwater so fast you couldn't cook the sausages. And uh, (laughs) I slipped in the mud and was covered in mud. Uh, yeah we managed to retreat i think after two days yeah and the comedy store reopened while we were there too in fact you and i played the second night that it had reopened after being closed for uh several years yeah we should mention the comedy store is uh, was downtown in leicester square i think it's near piccadilly circus now it was a huge gig it was about 300 350 something like that yeah and it was run at the time by a guy named don ward who had run it in the 70s and um he purposely he had an eight o'clock show and a midnight show Mm -hmm. and we usually got booked for both and you could even do a gig in the middle Mm -hmm. and on numerous occasions we would do six gigs in two nights because we would do an eight o'clock 
comedy store and then head someplace else mm-hmm. and then head back for the midnight show. Yeah. And the midnight show was 300 and some drunks, yep. usually. It was brutal. It, it, and we have some pretty good hell gig stories. Yes. People it's, are impressed. Yes. Would you like to uh, give oh, us a couple of hell gig stories? I'll give the... So, one at the store, midnight show, and we used to open our set by being American tourists, and we'd walk through the audience, you know, and going, hey, George, you know, where's the bathroom? We're looking for the bathroom. We get all the names, Leicester Square, and, you know, all the names wrong, and then... I would always say, hey, take a picture of me and, you know, this guy or whatever, gave him a name or whatever it was. And I would get in the audience with an audience member and you would take a picture. And often I had film in the camera. So I have like hundreds of pictures of audience members. (laughs) All over the world. All over the world. And um, so this one night I'm sitting next to this guy and he puts his arm over my shoulder. His left arm is over my shoulder. And then he takes his right arm clasps it on his wrist, and then starts choking me. So he's got his forearm on my throat, and he's choking me. Meanwhile, the slow clap starts in the back, you know, it's that slow clap where it's going to go faster and faster, and they start yelling for you to leave. And then in the back, you hear, fuck off, you American bitch. Uh, And you're looking at me, and I'm looking, and I've got my hands over his arm, and I'm looking, and I'm like, yeah, I can't. I can't get his arms. I think now I probably would have just slammed his arm and done something, just stopped the show and was like, are you out of your fucking mind? <laughs> but then I'm trying to keep the show going. And uh, you pried his arm off my neck. And then we were like, good night, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Walked off the stage. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was and I have a picture of, of it. Gig. For those who need the perspective here, Britain is probably the heckling capital of the world. Could in be. Terms it's both brilliant yeah. in terms of they heckle people in parliament and, uh, you know, comebacks and reposts of or, or go throughout British history with some great one-liners that, you know, Churchill made or whatever. But a lot of it can be really tough. And a drunken crowd of hecklers can be brutal. It's brutal. Yeah. Well, because in the States, you have more of the lone wolf mentality. It's usually some guy who wants to show off for his friends. And he's trying to be clever or the, I'm helping you. And it's like, you're not helping, actually. But you can usually snuff out, you know, one. You can usually deal with one pretty quickly. But there is a bit of a mob mentality in Britain, and they all start up. And and if they're drunk and one starts, it's now licensed to go. And it's very hard to come back from 300 people. It's It was tough. And we weren't the only ones who had, you know, these hell gigs. But one night, the one that I was, I couldn't believe it, that I, um, we were playing the Albany Empire, which was in South London. It was a very tough room with a very tough MC, and it happened that there was a 49er game on later that night. And we really wanted to go home and watch the 49er game. And um, so, and this this theater was a beautiful theater, and it had beautiful boxes, you know, balcony boxes. It was a really beautiful old theater. And I'm looking up and going, great, there are people in the boxes. Well, what are they going to throw down on us now, you know? And we start our show, and it starts to ruffle a little bit. You start getting some heckling, and I remember just stopping the show and going, listen, you have two choices. You can either sit there and shut the fuck up, or you can laugh. Your choice, but we're not getting off stage. And they were like, oh, all right then. And then we were fine. It was fine for the rest of the show. fine for the rest of the show. And I went, where did that come from? Oh my God. You know, in, in retrospect, I sometimes think 
British audiences, the, both the best of times and the worst of times. Absolutely. Because you can get the brutal heckling. But we had so many times where we had people getting obscure American jokes. They know more about us oh, yeah. than we know about them. Yeah. And we would get brilliant audiences that would yep. make wonderful suggestions and mm -hmm. really esoteric suggestions. No. People were phenomenally knowledgeable. Yeah. And I think in, in, they were also fair in a lot of ways. Because I remember the Meccano Club was one of the best comments we ever got. Mm. We sometimes would walk on stage and people would be angry that, you know, those Yanks are there again. This was in the middle of Reagan's era, Reagan mm -hmm. to uh, Big Bush. And at one point, we were the McConnell Club, which was a club in North London and Islington. We got on stage, it seemed kind of hostile. We did the show, we kicked ass. We got off stage, and at the break, a guy came up to me at, at, the, at the bar, and he said, you know, I wanted to hate you. I really tried to hate you, but I ended up really, really loving you. And I thought, that was one of the best I things know. that ever happened. Anyway, so that was indicative of kind yeah. of a culture. That it no, was. it was great because they were great. Uh, it, it, like you said, it was great and it was hard and horrible and wonderful. And again, great training ground. And one of the things I loved about the British British scene was the British comics. Because you would sit backstage and we had all kinds of political conversations. We had conversations of depth and you were making each other laugh. But it wasn't just one-upping each other. It's only in hindsight that you realize that you were really a part of something. You don't know at the time. We were all young, you know, just doing our thing. And it turned out that some of the people who are some of the biggest known stars now in Britain, uh, not as well known here, but Paul Merton, Mark Thomas, some who are known here now, Craig Ferguson, um, of course, Eddie Izzard, and many others. Those were all the people that we played with. And we were... We were part a, a part of British comedy history. We may have been a footnote, you know, a little part, but we were part of the heyday of British comedy. You became involved with a variety of British improvisers, and actually improvisers from all over the English-speaking world. And um, I wonder if you could tell us about that initial connection with Theatre Sports UK and some of the improv scene that you became involved with in, in Europe. Well, yeah, it, it, our connection to theater sports really started in San Francisco when you and I were preparing to do the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 87, and Ray Hanna was uh, a comic who was doing it with us, and he, we were at our apartment in San Francisco and got a knock on the door, opened it up, Ray said, this is Brian Lohman, he's doing the show with us, <laughs> and we went, um... Okay, and we didn't know who this Brian Loman was, but Brian um, introduced us to theater sports, saying we're doing this new kind of show, you should come see it. So we went to see a show, and it was two teams of improvisers who were competing against each other, and it turned out that the um, ref or the MC was my old childhood friend, Danny O'Connor. And so we really got involved with theater sports. We did the very first workshop they ever taught in San Francisco. Keith, and uh, this is all based on the work of Keith Johnstone, who wrote a book called Impro and another book called Impro for Storytellers. And it changed the world for me as far as improv is concerned. We sort of were, we did, we, we worked with Viola Spolin's work a lot, but we were kind of making up a lot of stuff on our own. And 
What I loved about John Stone's work is it was so methodical and everything, one thing led to another. And here's a skill that teaches you how to do this. And you could start to really create solid scenes and narratives and stories, which was so fun. So when we went to the Edinburgh Festival in 87, we hooked up with some people who were doing theater sports in London, but it was very small at that time, really small. Alan Marriott, Laurel McGowan. Yeah. So we, um, uh, and, if, and there are uh, many, many others whose names I'm not going to um, remember right now. But when we came back, we kind of, we all sort of stepped it up and ended up um, at the Donmar warehouse with um, Nika Burns. And it was, the Donmar was still considered a West End theater. It, it wasn't at the time what it is now, <laughs> which yeah. is amazing. But it was this great theater. And we did midnight shows. And we created this incredibly strong group of improvisers. Yeah. But it was, it was uh, amazing. And what was really cool was uh, I started teaching, and I mean, we both did, as a way to make money in addition to stand-up. It was just a way to make some extra dough. Mm-hmm. And again, I didn't know it would end up being my life's work. And I remember one of the first workshops I taught at Theater Sports was just being honest and real. Like, let's just bring it down and just start to create some real connection and let's just create honesty with each other. And that has turned into my life's work. I mean, I've taught all kinds of improv and I did taught and did theater sports for many decades. But my real work is about dropping down and getting deeper and getting more into the sort of guts and visceral and connection and emotional and all that kind of stuff. And it started there. It started in London. And so... One of the great connections, too, as I think it made for us, was meeting, finding out about theater sports, finding out about improvisation, being international. Mm-hmm. And I, I go back to that one thing when we were up in 1987 in Edinburgh, and um, they had arranged some sort of an international theater sports uh, evening. We arrived, there was improvisers from all over the English-speaking world, and some who weren't. Yeah, I mean, because we also started working in Germany, too. So we were That's working right. in places that did, in, in yeah. Denmark and Holland where it wasn't yeah. English-speaking either. But yeah, yeah, that was an amazing night. And we met all these people from all over. And I think you and I, who were loving living in Britain at the time, also got this hit about what a wonderful thing this is to feel so connected with everybody else on the planet. Yeah. Basic tenets still apply. You can just get on stage and play with anybody. You don't have to have met anybody before. My favorite thing is to get on stage with somebody I've never met and don't know. And it's like, oh, hi, how you doing? And we just start to go. And you just play. And it's so much fun. I love the international aspect. I love playing with people from different countries. I love playing with people who don't speak English. I love playing where I don't speak English. Um, I've played in Germany and, you know, either silently or with the best German I can come up with. And it's really fun. I love anytime there's an international group of people getting together to create art or discussions or just anything. It's it's so vital. It is so enlivening and it makes you feel like, okay, it's going to be okay. The world's going to be okay. <laughs> and I want more of it in my life. I want more of that in my life. And I want, I need to connect more. So all you international artists out there who are listening, uh, let's talk. In uh, 1994, uh, you and I split up, and you moved to L.A. to pursue opportunities in acting and improvisation, and you connected almost immediately with L.A. Theater Sports, where you eventually became artistic director. It was time to try something else, and I assumed I would move to San Francisco, but then um, this was a time um, when Jerry Jewell... 
Jerry was writing Muppet Treasure Island with Kirk Thatcher. And Kirk and I became good friends. And he said, well, why don't you come to LA? And I said, well, I hate LA. So just come down, just see and come here. So I went and I stayed with him for a couple of weeks, connected with Dan again, because uh, we, Dan and I, Dan O'Connor and I had been connected since 87 when we were doing theater sports. And I had a few friends in LA and I thought, well, if I'm ever going to do the whole LA thing, I might as well do it. So I moved down in November, 94. Moved in with my grandfather. So I lived in a room above the garage with my grandfather. Her grandpa was about 90 years old yeah. and still pretty feisty. Oh, he was very feisty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. He, and he would walk around the house going boom, 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 Do all these fights on smoke cigars, drink hefty bourbon. He was a kick. Um, he, he looked a lot like Mr. Magoo. Yeah, he did look mm-hmm. like Mr. Magoo. So I was able to join Los Angeles Theater Sports right away because Dan was the artistic director. And they were so welcoming. They welcomed me immediately. And I was surprised because I kept thinking, oh, it's going to be competitive and women are going to be competitive. And they're, you know, it's gonna, I'm going to seem like a threat somehow. And it wasn't the case at all. People were just so welcoming. It was so nice. My very first gig in LA was doing Pulp Playhouse with Michael McShane and Brian Lohman and Brad Sherwood, Brad who went on to um, Whose Line Is It Anyway, Dan and Ellen Plummer, and the very first Comedy Central, what was it called? It was the Aspen Comedy Festival. Oh yeah. It was um, so it was the Aspen Comedy Festival, and we were at the very first one. So we did we did the show, we did it in L.A., and we did two nights in Aspen. So that was my introduction to Los Angeles, was going to Aspen and having presents put on my bed every day. And I was like, this is nice. <laughs> then eventually we moved out of a space. We moved into another space in the Valley in North Hollywood. Dan went to New York to do a show, and I became the artistic director of Los Angeles Theater Sports. And we were running shows... Thursday through Sunday, I think it was. Anyway, and then theater sports turned into Impro Theater, which is a smaller group, uh, a, a tight ensemble that does uh, full length, improvises full-length plays in the style of the great writers. Jane Austen, Chekhov, Shakespeare, Tennessee Williams, and a variety of other things. Dickens at Christmas. Dickens. Mm-hmm. Um, so I... And I played with a bunch of other groups. I played at the Acme Comedy Theater in a show called The Cream that was hosted by Fred Willard. And um, Brad Sherwood brought me in on that show. And then I joined um, joined Fred Willard and his wife Mary's um, sketch group, The Mohos, for a long time. So I was doing sketch again with them, which was super fun. Um, the Cream was super fun because we got to actually, and then became uh, Acme Unplugged. But there was improvisers from all over the city. So I got to meet all these people from Groundlings. And that's where I met my friend Phil Lamar, who ended, who he was on Mad TV. And um, just Edie McClurg. I got to play with her at one point. And as an actor, my I wrote a one-woman show called The Glass Slit. I did one woman show up here in Mendocino called Paper Dolls. And that was my first one-woman show. And then I did a one-woman show called The Glass Slipper, which got picked for the HBO workspace, which was the theater wing of HBO. And The Glass Slipper was a uh, show about uh, uh, fairy tale characters and their future, their, yeah. the rest of their lives. And what's happened to them since Happily mm-hmm. Ever After. And right. so I got picked to be in the HBO workspace and I got my agent out of that and I started, you know, auditioning and I went out for commercials and I did a couple of television shows, just small parts. And and then I, and I worked in, I was a Foley artist where I did the sound, you know, the sound effects, the physical sound effects, mostly walking for movies. And I did some 
work in casting. And I was the um, director of the Pepperdine Improv Troupe, which was at Pepperdine University, and I ran that for 13 years. 13 years, right, mm-hmm. yeah. And so that was also, you, for that, you coached then a group of, of uh, students who then be, who were involved with their Pepperdine Improv Group, and then you did regular shows with them, We too. did shows once a month. You auditioned at the beginning of the year, and it was an ensemble that stayed through the whole year. Um, I had some kids for all four years of their college career. Um, they had to audition every year. Um, they are my babies. I'm still close to many of them, and they are my children, and I love you guys. And I also worked in um, special ed schools, and I worked with emotionally disturbed kids. Um, doing and you'd also do uh, improv, improv workshops and stuff with them? or, mm-hmm. or uh, Theater. I did theater, theater. and um, I did whatever a kid wanted to do. We did scenes. We did improv. I had a girl who was writing a, a script. So she three years, she was writing a script. I would help her write it, and by the, by the end, uh, as she was going, she was correcting her own grammar. And this is a kid who wouldn't read you know who wouldn't do any schoolwork she's now writing a script so I could go on and on about all the things that happened that were amazing and I worked with a group called Suspect Entertainment which was a group of ex-gang members who were looking to move into show business and I was their acting coach and that was fantastic I loved doing that it was super fun and worked in mental health centers and and then you know corporate training when I can get it and still do when I can get it So I know in the last um, 10 years or so, you've become involved with coaching with um, animation and cartoon companies. And I think it, uh, it may have been involved originally with Alan Simpson, your husband, uh, for many years. And anyway, tell us a little bit about how you got involved with Pixar and DreamWorks and some of these other companies. I was doing a show in um, the Bay Area with Impro Theater, and we were doing our Jane Austen unscripted show at the Throckmorton in Mill Valley. And two friends came to that, um, one of whom had been my student in L.A., and one of whom I had done a show with in L.A., and they both worked at Pixar. And Alan, Pixar has its own improv group that was coached and still is coached by the wonderful Rebecca Stockley. They asked Alan to come and do some musical improv workshops. And I would come up with him because it was in the Bay Area. My family was there and I would hang out. And then they started to ask me to do their shows because they have an in-house improv group called the Improvables. So I started doing shows with them and then they wanted to do a workshop with me that was uh, based on character work. So I talked to Rebecca and I wanted to make sure that I got her blessing. And I um, did some character improv work. And then I was doing some this character work and Alan was up and it turned and the woman who did the booking at the time asked if I taught acting and I said yes and nothing happened from it but while we were there for this trip doing the character class it turned out that the acting teacher she had for family reasons had to back out of a class that was had just gotten set up that was acting for directors and it was going to be most of the big directors at Pixar so we just were at the right place at the right time, and Alan has a theater degree, even though he primarily works in music now. So we ended up turning around, turning it around within three days, I think. Um, went back to L.A., created a workshop, and Alan was back up the next week. He did the first one. I flew up and did the second one. We did third one, and they extended it. They liked it so much, they ended up extending the class. So somehow my character work got mentioned first, so I ended up teaching a character class for the animators and it, I'm, it was 
pretty extraordinary because it was one of these things where you just feel like, oh, I'm super special because I was in London and I'm talking on the phone from London to the person who's putting together these these character classes. And usually about 12 people will sign up for a class. And she said, well, we're, we're at about 15 now. I was like, okay, great. Well, 30 people signed up. And so we ended up having to break them in two and we did two classes and I would do one and then I would run across campus to another space and do the second one. And the next day I would do one and then run across. So all of these animators signed up for the character class, which was extraordinary. I couldn't believe it. And then they wanted everything else too. So we started teaching the acting class for the animators. But meanwhile, that's going on. We, uh, I was teaching some improv at DreamWorks and Alan was doing musical improv at DreamWorks and then they wanted the acting classes too. And then somehow the layout department wanted some help with some visual storytelling. So they brought us in to meet with the layout department and um, this, these are the things we wanna work on. So we went, okay. So we created a visual storytelling class. Then we created, then they wanted just comedy. So we created a visual comedy class. And that, which is basically, here are some things to help make a shot funnier. And if there's any opportunity to tell us more about the character and tell us more about story, do that first instead of just tacked on gags. Um, so we, and we have, I think over 150 clips in that class. So you were experiencing show business as you went along. The same is true a lot of your improv career and you sort of have you know, it's headed in different directions, coaching-wise, experientially. I just wondered, where do you see that in your life? I mean, it, as an improviser, as an experiencer, as an you know, self-educator, how, how did it all come together, you think? Well, I definitely learn by doing. I am much better about doing something. I don't do... I can read books and learn. Um, I find that I just like to do. And I do like to discover things for myself which is a blessing and a curse because I can reinvent the wheel a lot people have gone before me with wisdom that I am missing because I won't read the books or take the classes I'm just like I I, I mean it kind of goes back to um in my family the the joke is that my saying when I was a kid was I can do for me here let me help you with your sweater I can do for me let me put that up I can do for me and as far as improv, I change my whole kind of worldview about it about every seven to ten years. I'm like, yep, done with that whole part. Now this, this, now this is what I think it is. You know, and I think at this point I have distilled it down to its essence. And what I, the way I teach now, I think I've distilled it all down to its essence. And it's really simple. And I like to teach it that way is um, I talk about, you know, and it's not anything that's revolutionary. It's what we say that improv is about being in the moment and notice what's there, but we just don't do it very often as improvisers because we're usually in our heads. So I talk a lot about, you know, be the investigator of a scene instead of an architect and discover rather than create um, because it's all right there. Just notice, just notice, just slow down and notice. And the thing that's been amazing is it's not surprising that improv has become my life's work because you teach what you need to learn. And improv is a spiritual practice and it is a meditative practice and it is a Zen practice because it's about being in the moment. When I was working in, you know, homeless shelters and, um, 
mental health centers where it was by and large marginalized people or the, you know, juvenile offenders and things like that. I felt like, well, I'm doing what I can do here and with a human being in front of me. And that's the work. I do want to get more politically active in a more organized way. But also I feel at this point, I think as trite as it is, any kind of kindness and courtesy that you can show another human being at this point in our culture is a revolutionary act. I think that the work that I do, especially using improv to help people communicate better together, to help people feel more comfortable in their skin, I feel like what my work really is about is to show people and to help people realize you're okay exactly the way you are, et cetera, et cetera. And we just don't know the impact that we have on people that the smallest thing can make a difference. And I had that illustrated to me very clearly in an incredible gift that Alan, um, my um, husband, gave me for my 50th birthday, which was this book that... um, he contacted everybody he could get, friends, family, students, etc. If I had an impact on them, would they write something? And this thing has about 200 entries in it. I mean, it's amazing. And there are people who are writing saying, I'm crying as I'm writing this because you made such a difference in my life. The thing that was amazing to me was it was so ego fulfilling that it was ego bursting. Like it busted my ego. There's like, it went so <clears throat> It went so far past ego gratifying that it was, I could no longer say that I didn't make a difference on this planet, which was, you know, where I was at 50 going, I got nothing to show for myself. I'm a loser. And that some of the things that people were saying were the smallest things that I didn't even remember. It wasn't my student who I helped get through a block in their acting or whatever. It was, I walked in the door, I felt intimidated by the other people in the room and you came over and said, hi, and you took me over and sat me next to you. Or you just said, hi, I'm Tracy. And that it was huge. And I went, I don't remember it. And I went, that is amazing. The things that we do in our lives make a difference. We may not feel like it, but it makes a difference, good and bad. So I need to be really aware of what I'm putting out into the world. So if I'm putting out that graciousness, that kindness, as much as I possibly can, I think that is a political act. And I think that... Um, if, you know, we got to act local, think global, whatever it is. I mean, act micro, <laughs> act micro. What can I do right in this moment? And, and trust that that's going to grow while also being aware of what's going on in the world. I'm done. President Richie Rich. He's so special. I wish I was special. You're so very special. But I'm a creep. So much of the time, I am reminded that life seems to stir up various feelings I had about people in school. A classmate tricked me in fourth grade, and I lost my chance to go on a school picnic. Some girl rejected me in high school, so I never asked anyone to the big dance. Or that eighth-grade bully stepped on my shoes and gave me a flat when I was in sixth grade. I still hate that asshole. What, are you going to cry now? Come on, cry, baby, cry for me. Come on, cry! 
So during the 2016 election, I was amazed when Republicans voted in large numbers for Trump in primary after primary, in spite of the fact that he just seemed like a spoiled eighth grade bully to me. Of course, that bully and all his friends laughed at my distress. And because I was outgunned, both by his size and by the fact that his friends were all grouped around him, I would have to wait a few years. I'll be back. Donald Trump is just such a first-degree spoiled brat. Trump told us during the 2016 campaign that he had gotten a $1 million loan from his daddy, Fred Trump, a New York real estate baron, and built it into a $10 billion empire, making him what the New York Times has called the master dealmaker. I am a dealmaker. Who broke free from his father's tiny Brooklyn and Queens real estate operation and built the empire that would slap the Trump name on hotels, high-rises, casinos, and golf courses the world over. Donald J. Trump portrayed himself as an economic titan, a financial god. Unlike candidates who have run for president in the past 50 years, Trump has refused to show us his tax returns. When he goes to G7 summits, he treats other world leaders like playground kids that owe him something. He even famously threw two starburst candies at Angela Merkel, saying, Don't tell me I never gave you anything, Angela. Starburst, share something juicy. When 13 agencies of the federal government turned out their national climate assessment recently, a report which warned of dire environmental consequences for the citizens of the United States and the world, Trump dismissed it with a snarky, I don't believe it. Spoiled rich boys don't care about facts because they've never had to do their homework. Back in the 2016 campaign, Senator Harry Reid said on the floor of the Senate, Let's be clear about Donald Trump. He's a spoiled brat raised in plenty, who inherited a fortune, used his money to make more money, and he did a lot of it by swindling working men and women. Why would he change as president? Good question, Harry. As former Deputy White House Chief of Staff, Katie Walsh was quoted as saying her job was like trying to figure out what a child wants. And Senator Bob Corker famously described the present White House as an adult daycare center. In Let Trump Be Trump, sacked campaign manager Corey Lewandowski and former top aide David Bossie described their time at the heart of the chaotic campaign dealing with Trump's tantrums. According to Lewandowski, Trump once screamed at him, Did you say I shouldn't be on TV on Sunday? I'll go on TV any time I goddamn fucking want, and you won't say another fucking word about me. In October 2018, a detailed and heavily researched New York Times investigative report of 13,000 words came out that dug heavily into the president's father, Fred Trump's tax returns and financial records and has proved to be a comprehensive examination of the, quote, inherited fortune and tax dodges that guaranteed young Donnie a gilded life. Young Trump was far from the Horatio Alger of Queens. His was more like a comic book story for a spoiled brat, Scrooge McDuck. But how do you justify spending $5,000 on a velvet pillow for a dime? That dime deserves its own velvet pillow. It's my number one dime. The first dime I ever earned. Gilding the nest for spoiled little Richie Rich. This young boy, Richie Rich, is his name. He's written up in the Rich Hall of Fame. His bank account is as rich as his name. That's Rich, Richie Rich. 
Let's start with that small loan of $1 million that he had to pay back with interest. Fred Scrooge McDuck Trump actually lent his son at least $60.7 million, most of it never repaid, New York Times reporters found. Fred Trump was indeed very solicitous of his children and worked hard to make sure they were set up as regally as possible. According to Times Research, by age three, Donald Trump was earning $200,000 a year in today's dollars from his father's empire. By the time young Donald was eight, when he was probably stealing candy from country club babies, he was a millionaire. In his 40s and 50s, he was still receiving more than $5 million a year from Fred. You boys have to live that you can never get something for nothing. Yet when little Donald Richie Rich Trump seemed to careen from one financial disaster to another throughout the 1980s and 90s, his father's financial partnerships and companies dramatically increased their payments. The Times tells us, At Trump's Castle Casino, where an $18.4 million bond payment was due in December 1990, Fred Trump dispatched a trusted bookkeeper to Atlantic City with checks to buy $3.5 million in casino chips without placing a bet. With this ruse, an illegal loan under New Jersey gaming laws resulting in a $65,000 civil penalty, Donald Trump narrowly avoided defaulting on his bonds. In all, the New York Times report documented 295 separate streams of revenue Fred Trump created over five decades to channel wealth to his son. The Times goes on to tell us that, According to tax experts, with Trump Palace condos selling briskly, selling shares worth $15.5 million to your son for a mere sliver of that would constitute a multi-million dollar gift under IRS rules. But Fred Trump's tax returns show no such gift to Donald Trump. What they do reveal is that he used the transaction to declare an enormous tax write-off. That appears to violate federal tax law that prohibits deducting any loss from the sale or exchange of property between family members. You would think that Richie Rich would be undyingly grateful to Scrooge McDuck for all the largesse that had been placed in his gilded lap. Yet according to the Times, with his dad in ailing health and little Richie continuing to fuck things up, in December 1990, Donald Trump sent his father a document that left him both angered and alarmed. It was a codicil seeking to make a variety of changes to Fred Trump's will, among them strengthening provisions that made Donald Trump sole executor of his estate. But amid Mr. Trump's financial shambles, it was the month of the $3.5 million Trump's castle rescue, Fred Trump feared that the document potentially could put his life's work at risk, that his son might use the empire as collateral to save his own failing businesses. Fred Trump rebuffed the maneuver, refusing to sign the codicil. But the episode prompted a family reckoning. Fred Trump was aging and ailing. Without speedy intervention, he could die, leaving a vast estate, not just his real estate empire, but also tens of millions of dollars in cash, vulnerable to the 55% inheritance tax. So with the cash flowing out of Fred Trump's empire, the Trumps began transferring ownership of the lion's share of the empire itself to Donald Trump and his siblings. The vehicle they created to do that was a special kind of trust called a Grantor Retained Annuity Trust, or GRAT. 
The purpose of a grat is to pass wealth across generations without paying the 55% estate tax. The Trump parents did have to pay gift taxes based on one crucial number, the market value of Fred Trump's empire. But they dodge hundreds of millions of dollars in gift taxes by submitting tax returns that grossly undervalue the assets placed in two grats, one for each parent. Fred Trump's 1995 gift tax return claimed that the 25 apartment complexes and other properties in the trust were worth just $41.4 million. The implausibility of this claim would be made plain in 2004. Right. Let's do the math. When banks valued that same real estate at nearly $900 million. So the Richie got richer while McScrooge got his wish and the Trump empire was saved for the children. And Richie has never stopped bullshitting about how it happened either. In Richie's special narrative, he gets to claim he did it all himself. He's so special. Well, isn't that special? If you Google Trump's biggest tantrums, watch as 1,130,000 options come up. Take a look at YouTube's worst Trump tantrums. Read a recent Washington Post article and see that the president's tantrums are coming at an accelerating rate. Read a GQ report that his tantrums, read the Mueller investigation, are getting worse. All this from a man who claimed during the 2016 campaign that I think my strongest asset, maybe by far, is my temperament. Well, maybe next to his enormous hands and that mammoth cock. <laughs> the only person who might possibly believe that is Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Trump is the biggest spoiled brat in a government full of spoiled brats. Ivanka and Jared, Steve Mnuchin, how did this name get past Ellis Island? Betsy DeVos, is this her first real job? Heinrich Himmler, okay, we are exaggerating here. As Salon.com said in an article by Lucian Truscott earlier this year, we're talking about government by spoiled brats here. Spoiled brats who do what they want when they want to do it and they don't care what the experts say or what the lawyers say or what the eventual ramification of their actions might be because they want to get their way, no questions asked. They're spoiled brats, damn it. And friends of the big orange-headed spoiled brat of the Black Lagoon. If we're going to drain the swamp, let's start with Mr. Special himself. Fucking spoiled brat. We are the people who give all the chosen few because we get everything that we want. You want to be like me? Then play the lottery. Your chances are only a billion to one. Ain't fair, is it? Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. From Gorsuch to Kavanaugh, original intent or smelly residue? When that putrid personification of toxic sludge, Mitch McConnell... There are not many folks over here that are interested 
And that. Block President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court in March 2016, with the president still having 10 months to serve, I knew we were in trouble. As Simon Van Zylen Wood says in his New York Magazine article of May 28th. To partisan Democrats, McConnell's galling land grab wound up being a fitting antecedent to Donald Trump's election. First, a stolen court seat, then an illegitimate president. Sadly, this was a senatorial maneuver we will regret for the next 30 to 40 years. Last year, Trump nominated and McConnell pushed through Neil Gorsuch, main writer of the famous Hobby Lobby decision of 2014, a decision which allowed the company to refuse to pay for insurance to allow its employees birth control. If you want to prevent pregnancy, talk to your doctor about new prescription strength abstinence. Gorsuch quickly became one of the right-wing colossi on the judicial lists of the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society, another reactionary justice, someone who would be in favor of upholding death penalty cases, strengthening gun control rights, Could they be any stronger? And weakening same-sex marriage protections. Another crabby white dad from an antediluvian 1950s sitcom. Hope you weren't too hard on the beaver. The rotten apple doesn't fall far from the poisonous tree. Neil Gorsuch's mom was Ann Gorsuch, Ronald Reagan's first EPA administrator, and in both political philosophy and corruption, the Scott Pruitt of the 1980s. In less than two years, Ann Gorsuch cut the EPA budget by 22%, drastically reduced the number of cases filed against polluters, relaxed Clean Air Act regulations, facilitated the spraying of restricted-use pesticides, and was cited for contempt of Congress for refusing to clean up Superfund sites. Sound familiar? Although malevolent Scott Pruitt is now gone, his temporary replacement, Andrew Wheeler, promises to be just as bad. So Ann Gorsuch's environmental philosophy is back in place at the EPA, and her scion now sits on the Supreme Court. What a wicked little family Colorado has given us, and what a sad future this guarantees us. Let's remember, Trump nominated Gorsuch, but he was vetted by the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society, the two right-wing legal foundations determined to keep us locked in the original intent of the slave-owning founding fathers. Don't expect them to question the democratic legitimacy of the archaic Electoral College anytime in the near future. Now with the retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy, Trump regrettably has another chance to foul our future with one of his malignant nominees. This time, Leonard Leo, leader of the Federalist Society, has found him District Court Judge Brett Kavanaugh. According to Senator Tom Udall from New Mexico, The president pulled Judge Kavanaugh's name from a pre-approved list concocted by radical, far-right special interests that are committed to undermining a woman's right to choose, health care protections, safeguards for workers and seniors, LGBTQ rights, and a host of other critical public protections that touch the lives of every American. So far, par for the course. Another crabby white guy determined to uphold corporate rights, crush health care reform, and choose fossil fuels over the environment. But in this time of having a president who is facing severe legal problems and may need to be removed from office... You'll never think me alive! It appears Judge Kavanaugh wrote a rather disturbing article in the Minnesota Law Review back in 2009. For those who believe our presidents are citizens who serve their national constituency rather than being elected kings... 
Kavanaugh's paragraph, quoted in a Nation magazine article by John Nichols on July 9th, seems quite scary. I believe it vital that the president be able to focus on his never-ending task with as few distractions as possible. The country wants the president to be one of us, who bears the same responsibilities of citizenship that all share. But I believe that the president should be excused from some of the burdens of ordinary citizenship while serving in office. The indictment and trial of a sitting president, moreover, would cripple the federal government, rendering it unable to function with credibility in either the international or domestic arenas. Such an outcome would ill-serve the public interest, especially in times of financial or national security crisis. Nichols follows up by stating, quote, This combination of facts, a president who is under scrutiny choosing a Supreme Court nominee, who he certainly knows is disinclined toward holding presidents to account, is not merely unsettling, without an absolute and unequivocal commitment to recuse from any deliberations involving Trump's alleged wrongdoing, which no one expects Kavanaugh to make. This nomination cannot possibly be seen by Democrats or Republicans, liberals or conservatives, as a credible choice to serve on the Supreme Court. Stop the presses! As you can probably tell, I wrote this before the Brett Kavanaugh hearings had been stopped by the appearance of Christine Blasey Ford. I still stand by my denunciation of both Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh on the basis of their politics alone. Now, after watching Christine Blasey Ford overcome her fear and testify about her attack at the hands of Brett Kavanaugh back in high school, as well as Kavanaugh's petulant, hissy fit of a response, I am frankly kind of blown out by what an enormous turd... This guy really is. It is hard to remember anything of certainty at any point of my high school time from 1966 to 1970. I can remember various aspects of football practice, some classroom antics, some interactions with teachers, and a few party visitations. All are hazy, and all are even further back than the 35 or 36 years that Blasey Ford and Kavanaugh talked about. Yet, Christine Blasey Ford claims to have remembered Kavanaugh as her attacker, with 100% certainty. I don't buy Kavanaugh's being victimized by a political hit job and revenge on the behalf of the Clintons and millions of dollars in money from outside left-wing opposition groups. What a whiny-ass chicken shit of an argument. And after continuing to rail against what he described as a grotesque and coordinated character assassination, Kavanaugh warned ominously that what goes around comes around. I was hopeful the FBI investigation would prove Blasey Ford correct, but apparently White House counsel Don McGahn did an excellent job limiting the probe. The Trumpet men got what they wanted, and we taxpayers paid for it. We should be nervous. Kavanaugh will now join Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and John Roberts as a conservative bloc in standing against workers' rights, voting rights, environmental regulation, and standing up for corporations and tax cuts for the rich. He is an entitled rich boy. How rich can you get? you never gonna know till you've met. who was destined for Yale Law School while I and most of my friends worked our way through undergraduate educations at public universities. Kavanaugh would undoubtedly laugh at the comparison as he and his friend Mark Judge laughed at Christine Blasey Ford, 
I was underneath one of them while the two laughed. Two friends having a really good time with one another. A really good time for entitled people. So little things come back to haunt us over and over again. That oleaginous pile of partisanship, Mitch McConnell, absolutely ridiculous, will thankfully be compost in a few years. But sadly, his legacy will still be sitting like a smelly turd on the Supreme Court, ruining lives for years to come. It never fails to amaze me how some old men just love to force their philosophies on future generations, whether they were consulted or not. So let's remember the permanence of McConnell's stank in a little limerick. Neil's mom was a right-wing witch who gave birth to a judge named Gorsuch. Brett Kavanaugh now follows. Lady Justice will hang from the gallows and, and the, the future, future will, will be, be stuck, stuck with, with this, this stench. stench. Thanks to our artist of the show, improv performer and coach, Tracy Burns. Thanks to our tech meister, Marshall Downtown Brown. And thanks to our jack of all trades, Ken Krause. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Scour magazines. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Uh, sorry, okay. Sorry, Marsh. Did you record it? Oh, sorry. I got that one. Okay. <laughs> All right. I think we're good now. Okay.